What? Nobody said you for you to recant how sad your life is. Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about David Gerard. And where'd you do your research on this one, Katie? The book for this one was Blood Frenzy by Robert Scott. It's about vampires? a good name for a book. Yeah, Kendall kept recommending it to me, so I figured I would read it. Who's Kendall? My friend. Uh, Kendall Jenner? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And wh- where are we going for this one? This one is in Grays Harbor County, Washington. Ooh, the state the state of Washington? Washington State, yes. The home of a football team. All right, why don't you go ahead and start us off, Katie? We're going to begin our story on February 6, 1991, on Waco Hall Road, a dark, desolate dirt road used by a lumber company so their logging trucks could avoid driving on the highway. Because lumber trucks are dangerous. In the early morning hours, a man driving his truck down Waco Hall Road spotted the body of a woman lying on the ground. Once Grays Harbor County Sheriff's Office deputies arrived and looked at the body, they knew it was a homicide. Katie, can you repeat that and say, they knew it was a homicide. And then I'll just put the, the intro right there. Just use yours. You sound like a movie <laughs> person. What were those called? Commentator? Narrator? Narrator. Narrator. Who's going to put their sunglasses on right as you say it? And go, wow! Rock music, yeah! I think we'd be like ripping off CSI. No, they, they end on a pun. No, it's always you could say it's a real shit show or whatever they say. <laughs> like they find a body in a sewer. <laughs> they can't say shit on CBS, man. You sure about that? Yeah. Humans was a GHSO's crime scene specialist, along with being probably the best detective in the county. And he's who we're going to mainly focus on more so than David Gerard in this episode. Because he's got super spidey senses? Mm-hmm. Detective senses? When he arrived on scene, it was immediately clear to him that the victim had been intentionally run over several times by a car or truck. There were tire tracks near the body, and it was obvious she had been hit and drug a distance down the road before the vehicle drove over her, backed up over her, then drove forward over her again before fleeing the scene. Her leg was broken, and her scalp had been torn off by the tires. She had been hit so hard that her purse and other belongings were scattered across the road. Inside her wallet was her ID, which identified her as 33-year-old Elaine McCollum. Her pants were lying on the road inside out, and it was obvious that she had had sex with her killer on the road before she was murdered. Detectives began to piece together the last hour of Elaine's life. They learned that her boyfriend had been at home, attempting to go cold turkey off heroin, when Elaine decided to go out. I mean, he's probably not really a fun guy to hang out with. At that moment, no. (laughs) Detoxing from heroin. Yeah. Cold turkey. Can't you die doing that? No, mostly just alcohol. Will kill you if you... Yeah, if you withdraw off alcohol, it'll kill you for sure. Interesting. If you're severely addicted. Heroin, I don't think often it will. You know, I don't know what... I don't think I know what withdrawal feels like. Like, from a drug. I mean, they're all different. Yeah, but I don't... Have you ever taken, like, a prescription medication and what have you ever taken antidepressants omeprazole <laughs> i don't take it i get wicked heartburn i know what that feels like there you go drug withdrawal omeprazole <laughs> withdrawals it rhymes oh my god she was seen in taverns in downtown aberdeen a small city in grays harbor county around 10 p.m she was talking to a friend when a truck pulled up and elaine told him she was going to party and her ride was there 
Unfortunately, the man did not see which vehicle she got into. Elaine was not a known sex worker, and all of her friends said that she wouldn't have asked anyone for a ride home because it was only a three-block walk back to her apartment from downtown. It was also said that she would never have gotten into a stranger's car, so she had to have known the man who picked her up and would eventually kill her. How big is downtown Aberdeen? Not very big, I don't think. Yeah. These are all very small cities. Okay, yeah, because it doesn't seem like big city style. Didn't you watch that? There was a whole Netflix show about it. Aberdeen? Well, they call it Abby for short. After DNA testing came back, it was discovered that there were two different contributors to the semen found on the vaginal swab. One of those was Elaine's boyfriend, but the second man was not in any of the DNA databases. Detective Humans continued to work on any lead he could find, but eventually Elaine's case went cold. Now, was she a heroin addict as well? I don't believe so. Interesting. Because that kind of explained it for me, how this guy kind of selects his victims, sort of. No, I really, I honestly, I don't recall anything in the book mentioning that she had, like, a severe enough heroin problem where she would have been trying to score from anyone that approached her. I Yeah, okay. Maybe she had heroin and she didn't want to do it in front of him. She was like, this guy's a bummer. I think out. she did enjoy drinking, but I don't think she was, like, smashed that night and didn't know what was going on. I think she just... She just went downtown to hang out. And she was like, oh, this go guy's to going bars. to a different party, so we're going to go head out there. Okay. I mean, more than likely, she knew him in some way, shape, or form, and because it was small, it is a smaller city, it's like one of those, if you know someone, it's it could be literally anyone. You know anyone and everyone in the city. Not personally, but she would have probably recognized him from another bar in downtown Aberdeen. Ah. Four years later, on February 15, 1995, a trucker was driving down a local road around 5 a.m. when he came upon a home completely engulfed in flames. The man pulled his truck over, grabbed his pistol, and fired multiple shots into the air to alert the family inside the home and any neighbors. Which is a unique (laughs) way of going about that, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and maybe he's like, I might take out whoever did this with a stray bullet, like... (laughs) No, I, I mean, it's a good idea. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You don't want to get on someone's property. You see a house on fire. Pop, 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 pop. People wake up. Call 911. Guess what's going to show up right there? The authorities? Like, what's a cop going to do against a fire? It actually worked, and the next-door neighbor awoke and called 911. By the time firefighters were able to get the fire put out, it was discovered that 66-year-old Patricia McDonald her 34-year-old daughter, Patty Rodriguez, and Patty's sons, 8-year-old Matthew, and 6-year-old Joshua had all been killed. The family's two dogs were also deceased. A fire investigator looked at the scene and determined that it was an accidental fire and most likely started by the wood stove that Matthew and Joshua were sleeping in front of. Detective Humans attended the autopsies of all four members of the household. Patricia, Matthew, and Joshua were all sleeping in the front room of the home by the stove, the boys on the floor, and Patricia in a recliner. Patricia's body was found in the dining room, not far from the sliding glass door, as if she'd gotten up and tried running outside, but was overtaken by the fire. She and the boys had no soot in their throats, so they had not died from smoke inhalation. The coroner guessed that all three were killed by a superheated blast of air. Wouldn't, if that was the cause of death, like, this super burst of heat, show something or some kind of evidence in the autopsies afterwards like 
The problem was, I mean, there's no way to like specifically say this is 100% what killed them because they had been burned like severely. Their bodies were on fire for quite a long time after they died because it took the fire department, I think, 14 minutes to get to the house and then probably 20 or so minutes to get the fire put out enough that they could go in and check for victims. So they were significantly burned and there was no way to guarantee that he was correct. Okay. I don't think he was correct for the record. What do you think killed them? Suspicious activities. So the problem is when you're an you're a coroner, you can't actually put that in your autopsy report. You huh. have to be a little more specific. Well, I'll bet you you're about to give give us some specifics that that dumbass coroner could have figured out. Can I say that? I don't know. I can't <laughs> give you any specifics. How would yeah, I do that? Why would you I read haven't the seen script? The autopsy I don't remember reports. the details. I thought there was some details coming up. I'm not an ME. I haven't looked at these children's bodies. I don't know exactly what killed them. Well, Could they, have been CO2 poisoning. They knew there was no soot in their throats. Yeah, so they did not die from smoke inhalation. That's all you can say, though. They were laying on the floor. They're not going to die of smoke inhalation. Ooh, ooh, look at that. Yeah, they're going to die from fire. Extreme heat bursts. It could have been that, yes. They had no signs of foul play, let's say that. They were not, like, stabbed to death and then lit on fire. Patty was found in her bedroom with head trauma. It was assumed that she died of smoke inhalation, and as the ceiling collapsed, a piece of wood fell and hit her in the head. That's, like, a hell of an assumption, really. Yeah. Even though it was ruled an accident, something stood out to the detectives on the case. The night before the fire, Patty had broken up with her boyfriend, a man named David Gerard. So old Davy boy. He couldn't stand being broken up with on Valentine's Day, and then he just went family massacre, you think? From what I understand about this guy, he literally did not give a fuck about Valentine's Day. So I don't think it was that. I think it was just the breaking up part. Oh, just happened to be on Valentine's Day. The reason that I mentioned the dogs is that this was ruled an accident, and the dogs were basically like curled up in the back of the house. And so more than likely... They assume that if someone had broken in and lit the fire, that the dogs would have woken someone up. And obviously the dogs had not really woken up or cared that much that someone was in the house. So they figured, well, the dogs died. Dogs didn't bark. So Detective Humans called Gerard and asked if he'd come answer some questions. Oddly enough, Gerard said no. So Humans <laughs> decided to stop by Gerard's house and he was able to convince him to come down to the station. I just imagine him like, nah. <laughs> like, he literally said, no, I don't want to. At least he was honest. And they were like, what? Your girlfriend just died. You don't want to come talk about it? He was like Rory. He was very closed off. I mean, if a cop came to my door and was like, hey, do you want to come to the station? I'd be like, no, thanks. <laughs> Once there, Gerard said that he and Patty had gone out to a cocktail lounge and gotten into an argument. He left and went to another bar where he met up with two other men. The three of them drank until last call, then went and got breakfast. Gerard was too drunk to drive, so one of the men drove him and his truck to his brother's apartment and dropped him off. Gerard slept for a while, showered, then went to a friend's home where he learned about the fire. Gerard was able to tell detectives where the smoke detectors were in the home and explain that Patricia had asked him to buy new batteries a few days before the fire. He was unsure if she'd ever installed them. Seems like it's all lining up awfully perfectly for... David yeah. Gerard. And the other thing they mentioned is who knows where the smoke detectors are in someone else's house? 
With no more questions, the detectives gave Gerard a business card and told him to call if he thought of anything else. Gerard took it, then leaned forward and rested his arms on his knees and put his head down. He sat completely silent for five minutes, just staring at the floor almost in a trance. The detective sat and just stared at him until eventually humans asked if he wanted to tell them something. Gerard looked up, said no, then left. Besides that very weird event, they had no reason to think that Gerard was involved in the fire and left it as an accident. Did they check his alibi at least? I don't know. I don't think they did. It sounds like they took it at face value. I think they did, yeah. The one thing that humans was kind of questioning was that Gerard was like well known to drive drunk. And so they were like, no one would have driven you home if you were blackout drunk. You would have driven yourself home. That's some good, so that's some good detective work. What are we thinking are the chain of events here? They get into a fight the day before on Valentine's Day. He goes out, gets hammered, shows up at their house. That didn't happen. I don't think he actually went out with those two men. So I think, think he went upstairs, had a screaming match of fighting, killed the mom. And then set everything else. I think he did break into the house, and that's why the dogs didn't react because obviously the dogs would have known him mm-hmm. and not really tried to attack him or bark at him. I think he went in and bludgeoned Patty. That probably woke Patricia up and somehow killed her. They think she might have also had a heart attack while she was trying to get out of the house. If she did have heart problems. Do you think she was trying to go get help or do you think she was just... She was either trying... I think she was either trying to get out of the house. Maybe she and the boys slept through Patty being killed and the fire being lit. Or she saw Gerard and knew she needed to get out of there and somehow he was able to kill her. Maybe kill the boys or maybe he just started the fire. Okay. Five years after Elaine McCollum's body was discovered on Waco Hall Road, Detective Humans was once again called out to the same area for a homicide. On August 3, 1996, a logging employee was headed to work when he spotted the body of a woman lying on the road. She was fully clothed and covered in blood from multiple stab wounds and a slit throat. Detective Humans believed that she was stabbed and fell to the ground, then was hit over the head and either knocked unconscious or dazed. She had no defensive wounds on her hands, but they were covered in blood from her grabbing her throat when it was cut. As she lay face down, bleeding out, the killer straddled her and began stabbing her in the back. He then flipped her over, drugged her a few feet, and began stabbing her face, chest, and vaginal area. After processing the area, humans drove down the road away to look for any more evidence. He discovered a used condom and napkins lying in the road and assumed that the victim and killer had had sex in the car before dropping the used condom out of the window. Something obviously occurred between that area and where the body was discovered that caused the killer to become enraged to the point of losing control. This guy must be a really good detective to be able to find that that's part of this crime because... I could literally walk down your street and find a used condom Many and a of bunch them? of yes. napkins. Like, well, this is out in the middle of nowhere, first of all. But second of all, it brings up a really good point. Condoms aren't biodegradable, are they? No, these guys are straight litter bugs. Stop littering. PSA of the day. Yeah, Stop turtles. murdering women. The next morning, a man reported his ex-wife, Carol Layton, missing. And the thing with him and Carol was that they were still on very good terms, even though they were divorced, and she actually lived on, in a travel trailer on the property. So On his property? Yes. So he dropped her off in Aberdeen, and then he would have known if she came home, 
and she wouldn't have been out all night without telling him. He had driven her into Aberdeen on August 3rd, dropping her off at the library so she could use the computers. Carol instead met up with a friend and purchased heroin from her. She spent the day wandering around Aberdeen, then went to a bar around 10 p.m. He said that she wouldn't stay out all night without telling him, but she's doing a bunch of heroin without telling him. It's possible that he He knew knew that she was doing heroin. After refusing to pay the cover charge, Carol, who sometimes prostituted for money to buy heroin, was picked up by an unknown man and driven out to Waco Hall Road, where she was murdered. Fingerprints taken during the autopsy confirmed that the victim was Carol Layton. While looking into her history, detectives learned that Carol sometimes used a knife she carried to rob the Johns that picked her up. More than likely, after having sex with her killer, Carol pulled out the knife and attempted to take his wallet. This angered her killer, who was able to overpower her and kill her with her own weapon. Just like in Elaine McCollum's case, the DNA taken from the semen was not linked to anyone in their system. Even without a suspect, detective humans believe that Elaine and Carol were murdered by the same person. Most people, including the profilers at the FBI, told humans that there was no way that was possible. The attacks were two different, one with a knife and one with a vehicle. We usually see serial killers finding their method of killing and sticking with it, rarely ever changing unless in an attempt to throw police off their trail. Can it also kind of happen in a ramp period if they're still like a fledgling serial killer? It can, but I think Detective Humans kind of thought that he'd been doing this for a while. Detective Humans believe that in these two cases, the killer's method wasn't a certain weapon, but rather the absolute rage he felt while killing his victims. Detective Humans also knew that serial killers like to return to the scene and relive their crimes. On the one-year anniversary of Carol's death, he and a group of detectives set up a stakeout on Waco Hall Road, hoping the killer would come to celebrate in his own sick way. Unfortunately, they saw nothing and no one, and Carol and Elaine's cases remained cold. If we learned anything from Valentine's Day, though, it's that he's not a very sentimental guy, so is it really that surprising that anybody showed up? Didn't show up. I mean, he was doing everything right, humans, not Gerard, obviously, but he (laughs) was, like, going through the serial killer handbook and checking off everything. So, but technically, he's following the wrong path here, because... This man's not necessarily a serial killer. Um, Maybe. He might be. Yeah, I would would probably classify him as a convenience killer or a rage murderer or something because, and that's not necessarily, I know that's part of a class of serial killer, but I would put it at a different thought pattern behind what happens. They're still going to follow the same kind of scale, Scale, though. I mean, he's already connected the two crimes, which no one else really would have done, but he can see the similarities. And if you think someone's done this and, like, proud of themselves, like Gerard most likely was, you would think that he's probably going to come back and revisit. This was also in, like, the height of the Green River Killer, who was in the Washington area, so there was a lot of serial killing going on. So I think he might have just kind of been just going, okay, well, Green River, the task force just did this, so if it worked for them, I might try it, just because I just think I might be working with someone kind of in the same general headspace as Gary Ridgeway. I think at this mm. point, he wasn't looking at like, okay, well, the FBI, because number one, the FBI already told him, no, these aren't connected, you're stupid. So he's not going to like be like, okay, well, John Douglas said that rage killers and classified killers and blah, 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 all did this in a specific way. So he's kind of doing his own thing, but he's following... Like the rule book. The rule book, yeah. Okay. But he's got a little chip on his shoulder against the FBI at this point. I mean, he was 
upset with him, and then he proves him wrong and was like, fuck you guys. On March 17, 1999, Detective Humans finally found the answers he was looking for. He received a call that a young woman had been beaten almost to death in the milking parlor of a dairy farm in Oakville. 31-year-old Frankie Cochran had picked up a second shift that night and was sitting in the parlor when her ex-boyfriend, David Gerard, snuck up behind her and beat her with a claw hammer. Frankie laid on the floor near death for two hours before the owner of the farm found her and called 911. Before she completely lost consciousness, she opened her eyes and told the sheriff's deputies that David Gerard had done this to her. Did he think she was dead when she when he left her? Yes, more than likely. Oh. He thought this was enough to have killed her, and she was a very strong woman. So, A large part of her skull had been shattered and had to be removed to allow her brain to swell. Her jaw had been fractured and her arm broken when she held it up to protect her face. She had also been stabbed in the neck with either a knife or the claws of the hammer. Frankie was not expected to survive the attack, and if she did, she would likely never be able to walk again. Despite the odds, Frankie fought to live and would go on to make almost a complete recovery. Was she able to walk? She learned how to walk again, yeah. And talk? She could still talk after the attack. It was just the walking. They thought she might be paralyzed. And then she also lost all of her peripheral vision, which was kind of terrifying when you almost died because someone snuck up behind you and attacked you. Right. And now she can only see straight ahead. So that was one of the big things she had to overcome. But And her memory was pretty much shot. I mean, traumatic brain injury does that. She went on. She almost got married. It was so sad. Her boyfriend she met in the care home that helped her recover actually ended up dying of cancer. So she was just dealt like every card in the book and she still fought through it. So not long after Frankie was found, David Gerard was arrested. He was wearing perfectly clean clothes and acted confused when he was taken into custody. After arriving at the station to be interviewed, Gerard told detectives that he'd spent the evening driving on Highway 101, which takes around six hours to drive the entire stretch. This would have been a decent alibi, except for the fact Detective Humans remembered that part of the highway had been blocked by a landslide for the past two weeks, making it impossible for Gerard to have driven the whole thing. When confronted with this information, Gerard continued to stick to his story. He was booked into jail for first-degree assault, a charge that carries the same weight as attempted murder in Washington State. Detective Humans then searched Gerard's car, hoping to find the bloody clothing he'd changed out of after attacking Frankie. He didn't find the clothing he was looking for, but he did find a photo of a woman that was not Frankie. Humans recognized the woman, but couldn't figure out exactly where he knew her from. He took it into evidence, finding nothing else of interest in the car. When he searched Gerard's wallet, he found a photo similar to the one found in the trunk of the car, showing a woman and two children. Humans then realized where he knew the woman from. It was Patty Rodriguez and her two sons, Gerard's ex-girlfriend, who had mysteriously died in the 1995 house fire the day after they broke up. Humans' suspicions were starting to rise, and now he wanted to know everything he could about David Gerard. His detective senses were tingling. Yeah, because he already suspected Gerard during the fire, and then basically Frankie is attacked the day after she breaks up with Gerard. Mm-hmm. So it's all kind of convenient. Gerard just can't handle being uh, ditched. Yeah, he just hates women. Being told he's a loser. He then began looking into Gerard's background, curious what would lead him to attacking Frankie seemingly out of nowhere. 
he learned that a week before the attack, Frankie had broken up with Gerard after a fight they'd gotten into. They both worked at the dairy farm at this point and had arrived at work together that morning. As they sat in the car, they began to argue, with Gerard accusing Frankie of cheating on him. She told him he was delusional and that she was tired of his constant jealousy and accusations. Gerard became extremely angry, pulling Frankie out of the car and reeling back to hit her. Before he could swing, Frankie threw her hot cup of coffee in his face. Nice. Gerard said nothing, turned around, and walked into a nearby shed, emerging with a claw hammer held above his head. As he slowly walked towards Frankie, she stood her ground and told him to go ahead if he was man enough. For some reason, Gerard just turned back around, put the claw hammer away, got in his car, and left. The owner of the dairy farm had seen the entire event unfold and called the police, who located and arrested Gerard for domestic violence. A no-contact order was issued by a judge, and Gerard was released from jail, promising to show up for his trial. Did he just not attack her with the hammer, probably because the owner of the dairy farm was watching? Did he know that? I'm not really sure why. I think it was Frankie saying, go ahead if you're man enough, that probably convinced him then that he needed to kill her, and right there was not the appropriate time to do it. So instead of just beating her and police getting involved, he figured... I'll just come back when I can and kill her and not get caught. Once Frankie was healed enough to be interviewed, humans went to discuss her and Gerard's relationship in more detail. She explained they'd been dating for about a year and lived together in a mobile home park. Their relationship was almost a textbook example of an abusive relationship. When they first started dating, Gerard purchased her a car, putting the title and insurance in his name. After this, he became extremely possessive and controlling. He told her that if she ever left him or used the car without telling him where she was going, he would call the police and report it stolen. He demanded to know where she was at every hour of every day and who she was around. Anytime the phone rang, he demanded to know who it was. At one point in the relationship, Frankie left for a week and her cat was killed and left in her mother's car. Not long after they began their relationship, Gerard started demanding that they have a child and get married. Somehow, Frankie was able to avoid getting pregnant, despite Gerard demanding she have sex with him twice a day, every single day. Was she secretly on birth control, or just got lucky, or...? She... I'm not sure exactly, because normally birth control is somewhat difficult to hide from someone that's constantly looming over you, so I don't know how she did it. How would she get... She wouldn't be able to go to the doctor or whatever. She'd probably be like, hell no. Yeah, I don't know if she just got lucky or what she was doing, but... Good for her either way. Frankie at first was expected to stay home and keep up the house, but eventually decided she wanted to get a job. When Gerard found out she'd put in a job application somewhere, he came home and destroyed every single item Frankie owned in their mobile home without saying a word. Once everything was shattered and torn to shreds, he left. An officer came out and took a report, but after he'd left, Gerard took all of Frankie's clothing, laid it all in a pile, and poured bleach over it. He then left again without saying a single word to her. Gerard also kept a box in his closet that Frankie was never allowed to look at. Of course she did, and inside she found dozens of bar napkins and pieces of paper with women's names and phone numbers written on them. He had even more of these in his wallet. Anytime there's a box that you're not allowed to look in, you definitely gotta look in the box. Yeah. Despite the incident, a week before the attack and Gerard attempting to murder Frankie, he had never seriously physically abused her. Gerard's anger began early in his life when his parents divorced. He was the eldest child and quickly expected to be the man of the house. 
He constantly argued with his mother and siblings, but claimed that he was the one that was abused. He says that his mother would hit him in the head with a frying pan, a claim that was never corroborated by his mother or siblings. He also claims that he began drinking when he was 14, going to bars and being served drinks. As he got older, his arrest record began to grow, with Gerard being constantly arrested for public intoxication and DUIs. He was suspected and accused of multiple burglaries and petty thefts, but never arrested. Because he had dropped out of school in the 8th grade, he never worked anything more than low-paying jobs that he couldn't hold for very long before being fired. I know one of his thefts, so he worked for... I can't remember the name of the company, but he stole a bunch of turkeys from them, like frozen Thanksgiving turkeys. Oh. And so they fired him for that. They didn't call the police. But well, he took that them was to like, give to the homeless, right? No. That was just like the stupid shit that he would steal and get away with it because everyone was like, no, I don't want to get the police involved. And he also liked to brag a lot when he was at the bar. He would say like, oh, I robbed this person, I robbed that person, but no one ever really believed him. He was just a blowhard, it sounds like. In September of 1984, police were called to the Gerard residence for a domestic disturbance. When they arrived, they learned that Gerard's brother had jokingly changed the television channel Gerard was watching. Without saying a word, Gerard walked over to his brother and punched him twice in the head. His brother walked over and unplugged the television, inciting Gerard to attack him, knocking him to the floor and punching him in the side. Their mother intervened and allowed the brother to lock himself in the bathroom where police found Gerard banging on the door, yelling, I'm going to get you. It took the officer several minutes before they were able to pull him out of his rage trance and talk him down. Once everyone was separated and calmed down, both Gerard's mother and brother declined to press charges. Gerard's brother has to have some pretty... He's pretty tough, I guess. You know, you get punched twice in the head and you're like, fuck that, and you go unplug the TV. It's likely that this wasn't the first or last time Gerard was involved in a domestic disturbance. In 1986, he was responsible for taking care of his mother, who had diabetes. Because she was forgetful about taking her insulin, Gerard was the one who stayed at home and helped her keep track of her blood sugar. Sometime in 1986, Gerard's mother showed up at the hospital complaining of a severe headache stemming from an accident where she was rear-ended by a pickup truck. She was admitted to a nursing home to recover, but Gerard removed her against recommendations of doctors and brought her home. Two weeks after being brought home, she was discovered by her daughter unconscious. Paramedics attempted to save her, but unfortunately her blood sugar had been unregulated for so long that she had gone into ketoacidosis, which in simple terms is when your blood sugar is so high that your blood turns acidic. In most cases, ketoacidosis will begin to occur within 24 to 48 hours since their last insulin injection. Death can occur within days or weeks of entering ketoacidosis. So what this means is Gerard, who was responsible for regulating his mother's insulin intake, did not give her any of her doses for an absolute minimum 24 hours, but more than likely a few days. When the car accident was looked into that supposedly caused her head injury, nothing was found. It's assumed that Gerard had beat his mother, caused a head injury, then killed her to cover it up, but this is just speculation and has never been confirmed. Fuck this guy. Yeah, for real. Fuck this guy. They, they can't tell if it had been days or weeks since she had the her last shot. Depends on how quick your body breaks it down and stuff and how fast it can affect you, right? I don't know. I don't know if they did like a full-blown autopsy on her or if they just assumed that her unregulated diabetes was her cause of death. Interesting. As humans continued to look into Gerard's past, he also discovered that he had been involved in a rape case in 1997. A woman named Julie was drinking in a bar in Elma, Washington, when a man came and sat nearby. 
Julie carried a small revolver with her for protection, and after a few drinks, she either told him or showed him the gun. The man then told the bartender about the weapon, and Julie was asked to leave. At this point, she'd only had a few drinks, but for some reason the alcohol had an extreme effect on her that night, and she could barely walk. The man helped her to the door, where she tripped and fell, right at the foot of a police officer. An ambulance was called, and Julie was taken to the ER, accompanied by the man from the bar. Julie was extremely uncooperative at the hospital, and they eventually just released her into the custody of the man from the bar. The man then drove her down a dark logging road before pulling over and raping Julie. Once he was finished, he pushed her out onto the road, where she was found the next morning, still highly intoxicated. Was it possible that her drink got... She was roofied, like 100%. I can almost guarantee that she was roofied by him. Because I was going to say, that seems all too convenient that he found a reason to get her kicked out of the bar, and then she was extra drunk off of just a few drinks, and then... He goes to the hospital with her? Like, yeah, it was just... He roofied her and intentionally did all of this, basically. It sucks that they just assumed that she was just really drunk at the hospital when she probably wasn't. Police were called and Julie was taken back to the hospital and interviewed. When officers found the discharge paperwork from the night before, it was signed by none other than David Girard. Julie also picked him out from a photo lineup. He was arrested and interviewed where he claimed that he'd stopped at a local park so Julie and he could use the restrooms. He noticed a van parked in the lot with multiple Hispanic men inside. After he'd gone to the bathroom, he came back out to pull Julie and the van gone. He also explained that he wouldn't have raped her because he had a rash on his penis and sex was painful. Which is just convenient. Seems like it would have been pretty easy to prove. Unfortunately for Julie, nothing really happened with her case. Although they had pretty definitive proof that Gerard had raped her, the investigation ended when the rape kit was sent out to the local testing lab. They just never got it back, or they never cared after that? I think they really did anything with it. I think there was probably a huge backup, like there normally is with testing sites, and once they got it back, they are like, meh. Or maybe they were like, oh, it's David Gerard. We let that guy get away with all kinds of sketchy shit. Yeah, he was just very lucky. At this point, Detective Humans was almost certain that David Gerard was responsible for the murders of both Elaine McCollum and Carol Layton. He had living proof that Gerard would kill a woman that upset him, along with suspicions that the house fire that killed Patricia McDonnell, Patty Rodriguez, and her two sons, Matthew and Joshua, was started by Gerard. By now, Gerard had pled guilty to the attempted murder of Frankie Cochran and assault in the first degree. He originally had planned on pleading not guilty, but was convinced by his lawyer to plead guilty when he was reminded that a jury would be face-to-face with the still extremely injured Frankie during a trial. They tried claiming that Gerard would cry like a baby whenever the injury reports were read to him, but the judge wanted nothing to do with it and went far above the recommended sentence of 15 to 20 years, sentencing Gerard to 37 years in prison. Good. I like the fact that the judge didn't have any time for his bullshit. The recommended sentence for almost beating someone to death is 15 to 20 years? In Washington, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's not, well, because life then technically would be like 20 plus years, right? And they're not going to give you life if you didn't kill them, probably. I don't know. But just because it's the recommended sentence doesn't mean that a judge actually has to follow that and say, oh, I can only give you 20 years. Still, though, it's real low for what the crime actually is. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's certain instances where like 15 years would be a significant amount for attempted murder. Like if you... 
Didn't Colorado have that as their, like, it was one, oh, it was like one to 25 years, wasn't it? So, yeah, it was. Okay, I could see. So, like, but there is a difference between attempted murder with extreme violence and selling someone three hits of ecstasy or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there. so this attempted murder is, like, the whole umbrella of you accidentally or intentionally almost killing someone. So, okay. like, say you road rage and you, like, drive your car at someone, that's attempted murder. Yeah. So, I mean, that you could say, like, okay, well, I'll give you 10 years for that. But beating someone with a claw hammer, you want to go above 20 years. Luckily for detective humans, anytime someone is sentenced to prison, a DNA sample is taken from them and added to a national data bank. As soon as he could, humans resent the semen samples taken from Elaine McCollum and Carol Layton to be compared to David Girard. Not long after, the DNA found on the vaginal swab taken from Carol belonged to Girard, along with the semen inside the condom found on the ground not far from her body. Although this was pretty solid evidence, the county prosecutor told humans he needed more evidence that Gerard had actually killed Carol. Yeah, because they'll probably have the same question that I have, which is what's the shelf life of semen? Like, how, can, how long is it testable for? Forever, pretty much. You keep it in the fridge. DNA doesn't really degrade. It takes a very long time for it to degrade so much that it's untestable. They could prove they had sex right down the road from where her body was found, but they couldn't actually prove that Gerard had killed her. They also wanted to wait for DNA testing to come back on the Elaine McCollum case. Detective Humans was disappointed, but it only encouraged him to work harder. He went back to Elaine's case and began looking at the cars owned by Gerard that could have been used to kill her. Two had been sent to scrapyards and been destroyed long ago, but one was still around. Humans contacted the owner of the vehicle and explained it may have been used in a hit and run and he needed to look for evidence. Even though it had been eight years since Elaine's murder, Detective Humans laid out a tarp and climbed underneath the car. He spent hours meticulously scraping off every piece of dirt from the undercarriage onto the tarp, then went through the dirt and picked out any piece of potential evidence. Surprisingly, he actually did find hairs and fibers buried in the grime. Unfortunately, when they were sent to the lab and tested, they did not come back as a match to Elaine McCollum. Then Detective Humans had an epiphany. Looking at the crime scene photos from Carol and Elaine's murders, and Frankie's attempted murder, he discovered a pattern. Each of the women were found with one shoe on, the other lying near their body. He assumed that Elaine's shoe had been knocked off by the impact of the car, and Carol only had time to put one back on after being raped and attempting to run from Gerard. But he realized that when Frankie was attacked, she was wearing calf-high rubber boots, something that wouldn't have just come off while she was being attacked. Gerard had to have removed the shoe himself. Those were her muckers. Yeah, I mean, she was working on a dairy farm. Working on a dairy farm, you gotta have muckers. And those don't just, like, fly off your body when you fall down. Those no, things are on there. They literally make a suction noise yeah. when you pull them off your feet, especially if you've been sweating a while. What's with the shoe thing? Humans thought he might have a foot fetish, but I don't think they ever really figured out why but he did it. only for the left foot, <laughs> like... He just, for some reason, more than likely he was trying to recreate his previous crime scenes, which we're gonna about to get into, but... So it's entirely possible that the shoe flew off in the first one, yeah. and he and just then liked he, the aesthetic for it. It reminded him of Elaine's murder, so he kept doing it. Then, while looking at photos of Elaine and Carol, he realized that their bodies were mirror images of each other. Detective Humans believed that when Gerard killed Elaine, he looked in his rearview mirror at her body as he drove away, probably relishing in what he'd done. Then, when he killed Carol, he posed her body the way he had seen Elaine's in his rearview, allowing him to relive that murder. 
He also noticed that Carol and Elaine look almost like sisters. Do you guys want to see the pictures of them? Yes. Yes. This is kind of uncanny. With all of the evidence piling up and convincing humans Gerard was his killer, he went back and looked at the deaths of Patricia McDonald, Patty Rodriguez, and her two sons. He contacted a forensic anthropologist with Patty's autopsy report, asking if it was true that a piece of falling lumber could have caused Patty's head injury. After looking at the reports, the man said that there was absolutely no way a piece of wood could have fallen with enough force to cause the injury to the skull. To him, the wound looked to be from being hit with either a wrench or a hammer. Like a claw hammer. Mm-hmm. The neighbor that was awoken by the gunshots from the trucker also came forward and said that not long before he'd heard the shots, he thought he'd heard a woman scream. Finally, the DNA testing of the vaginal swab from Elaine McCollum came back, proving that David Gerard's semen was present in her body. By 2004, prosecutors were prepared to charge Gerard with the murder of Carol Layton, but held off on filing charges for the murder of Elaine because there was not as much circumstantial evidence tying her to Gerard. After a year of preparing for trial, David Gerard signed an Alfred plea on February 9, 2005, essentially pleading guilty to the second-degree murder of Carol Layton. He was sentenced to 17 years to be served concurrently with his 37 years for the attempted murder of Frankie Cochran. So basically what that means is he got no extra time. Yeah, it's going to be run at the same time as his original 37 years. It counts at the same time? Yeah. Concurrently, yeah. He was not sentenced consecutively. That's bullshit. Why do they keep letting this guy off? I don't know. That plea sounds like way too good of a deal than what he deserved. Yeah, we went over that before. Yeah. The... An Alfred plea? Yeah, the one, Batman's butler plea. <laughs> During Detective Human's years investigating Gerard, he was called out to eight other unsolved homicides that he believed David Gerard could be responsible for. Even after Gerard was sentenced for Carol's murder, he attempted to bring charges against him for the murders of Elaine McCollum and Patty Rodriguez and her family, but prosecutors never took the case. Detective Humans retired from the GHSO in 2006 and went on to work for the coroner's office, along with joining different cold case forums online, hoping to eventually solve the cold cases he believed Gerard was responsible for. Washington DOC doesn't give much information on their inmates, so all I know is that David Gerard is currently being held in the Monroe Correctional Complex. If he serves his entire sentence, he will be paroled in 2036 and will be 73 years old. Not that age matters much because there no. are murderers or murderers. Yeah, he's going to still come out and just be a worthless, rage-filled piece of shit. Yeah, I mean, we saw that, what, it was last year where mm -hmm. a very old, like, 80-year-old man was released from prison and immediately killed someone. He got back to murdering real quick. Yeah, so he is a huge threat to society, in my opinion, and, I mean, they have to let him out. It's not like they can add more years to a sentence for being a piece of shit but i think we should actually add that as a stipulation from now on where this guy's an extra piece of shit and whoever sentenced him was a fucking idiot if they'd have given him that 17 years consecutively like you said that would have made him 90 and 90 you know 93 the old man was 93 not 83 okay yeah he was an so. old ass man got You're out still went stabby stabby i'm pretty sure though that may have been institutionalization that uh Sent that old man back. But this guy's got to have that too. He was already guy a terrible murderer. Definitely should still be in prison. It's possible. I mean, I guess they could realistically, they have all the evidence still for Elaine McCollum's case. So maybe the DA's office is a little more willing to go about prosecuting on that and they can do it like 
right before he's supposed to get out. But even humans took it to, like, surrounding counties, and he was like, look, this is everything I have. And they were like, we would have prosecuted all three of those. And then they offered to do it, and Grays Harbor County said, no thanks, we're good. We'll stick with the one. Damn. All around. I think the most interesting thing that I left out is that there was a cop that knew Gerard, and he said he was like Ted Bundy, but without the personality. Okay. Which is, like, a really horrible <laughs> thing to say about someone, I think. That sounds like you're, you're telling someone they're very attractive, and sorority women will love you. Yeah, because, I mean, Bundy had no personality at all. And so imagine Gerard with even less personality than Ted Bundy. Well, I think Ted Bundy was more of, like, a mirror type where he exactly, could mirror yeah. your personality. So the reason that people thought he had a good personality was because it reflected back their own. Because he was just copying yeah. emotions. He Ex- didn't have exactly. any. So I think Gerard didn't have that skill set, so he was just blank slate. Yeah. But you know the skill set he did have? He was the best cow farmer. Uh, he'd probably be a pretty good roofer. So is that going to do it for us this week? Mm-hmm. That's that's everything. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening this week. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. Check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, and head over there for a full episode list to send us any ideas for an episode you might want to hear. Or you can throw a sticker in your cart, type in the code BINGOBANGO in our merch store checkout, and get it shipped out to you for free. Man, I really miss saying bingo bango. Let's tango. Yeah. Next week we are officially leaving the U.S., Oh, oh, shit. First time ever? Is it about another guy who can't stand to be broken up with? I think um, his problem was that he had a tiny penis, if I remember uh, correctly. A tiny, unworking <laughs> penis. Yeah, so... Ooh, that means I get to make jokes about penises? About his, sure. Yeah, his little tiny, weird dick. Little button dick. Anyway, guys, thanks for listening. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers! No, it's not. I'm not even going to believe that. He's been saying this for 10 years. The joke does not exist.